Welcome to another episode of the WAN Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and this is the show where we talk to networking experts about the data services that make business possible. So we've talked a fair bit about the middle mile and uh, network as a service. For example, we had Christian Koch on talking about that. And we've touched on various companies that are emerging around these issues. Uh, so for that, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome the CEO of one of those various companies, uh, Dave Ward uh, from Packet Fabric. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks, Greg. And if this is the WAN Manager podcast, that's got to make you the WAN man. So I'm, I'm pretty psyched to be here to chat with you and, and your audience. So, Absolutely. so let's go for it. You know, we, we were thinking about having a contest at some point for the listeners to who can come up with the best WAN pun. So you know, no, uh, mine, of course, is I'm a WANalist, right? But yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to let that go to the catcher. The only thing I can say is it's not family friendly. So I'm just going to go there. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. All right. So, you know, Dave, we usually like to start out with uh, letting my guests introduce themselves. You have a really extensive background on sort of the equipment uh, manufacturing end of the business. Could you give us a quick overview of where you come from and then how you came to Packet Fabric? Sure. Um, I, I emerged as a fully grown adult from the ocean one day. You know, I just I just walked out of the sea. No, kidding aside. Um, with a actually, certification already embedded, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, already tattooed with a bridge. Um, I'm yeah. going to tell a little bit longer story just to kind of give an mm -hmm. idea of how long I've been in this WAN business. I originally uh, was at the University of Minnesota and left the University of Minnesota doing a large-scale high-speed deployment, actually one of the first production deployments of ATM. I, I apologize mm -hmm. to all of those, but... Uh, Yes, uh, but nonetheless, yes. we were doing a distributed processing uh, project and also tried to uh, do a speed test versus those distributed workstations over a high-speed network on campus to supercomputers, which meant, meant that we mm -hmm. had to invent how to network supercomputers back in the day. Well, long story short, there's a very long story mm -hmm. there. Um, I decided to go to a startup called NetStar, which built the world's first mm -hmm. uh, distributed router, meaning independent uh, forwarding uh, boards running different protocols. One was FIDI, one was Ethernet, one was ATM, one was Hissy right. Hippie, all back in the day. And that company was acquired by Ascend Communications. And many folks may may remember Ascend if you ever had an ISDN link. And right before Ascend acquired Lucent, I left and went to the Internet Engineering Group out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was composed of a large number of or a number of developers and operators out of Merit. And so this whole focus that I've had really for my career, yes, I've done a, a bunch of land work and Wi-Fi radio work in the past, but really was around wide area networking. And so at, mm, with, at the mm -hmm. Internet Engineering Group, we sold uh, routing software because back in the late 90s, routing software was some serious black magic stuff. And system design and kernel design right. and forwarding plane design and things like that to all of those networking startups in the big heyday of WAN networking or in, when investors were investing heavily in that space. Well, December 17th, 1999, mm -hmm. at 3.15 p.m., but who's counting, uh, I signed to, uh, <laughs> to join Cisco Systems because they acquired the Internet Engineering Group. And it was we were the first mm. and very contentious acquisition by Cisco at that time because they had never acquired a routing software group because Cisco had all of the routing software groups. Really? But in 1999? Recall, that's interesting. 
Yeah. Well, if you, if you recall back in the day, there's a big brain drain to go form Juniper Networks. And a lot of those routing gurus left uh, mm -hmm. Cisco and went over to form Juniper. And so Cisco, again, in a contentious acquisition, um, uh, acquired us. And interestingly, December 17th was a Friday afternoon. Monday the 20th, I show up uh, with a good friend of mine uh, at the group who's now still at Juniper. But um, And we were wearing Birkenstock shorts and probably mustard, mustard stained t-shirts and the rest of it. And we uh, walked into right. Building 10, the executive right. building of Cisco. And I was met by this guy with a Southern drawl, John Chambers. I said, hey, come on in. Let me introduce you to the team. Well, oh, yeah. we walked in and there was you know, Van Jacobson and, and Fred Baker and Dave Aran and all these luminaries and people I looked up to at the ITF. I was, I was pretty big in the ITF in those days. Or I was mm -hmm. participating. I wasn't a big, 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 uh, big influence, but I was participating. Right, right, right. And here I am standing in front of 150 of the legends of the internet and Chambers hands me a pen and says, draw our next uh, internet core router. Turned to the rest of the group, said, "Let's see what we bought," and walked out of the room. And uh, I, you know, I didn't even no pressure. Time. Yeah. But that turned into yeah. uh, long story short. Again, many many long stories here, but that that turned into iOS XR, which is to this day uh, Cisco's service provider uh, router operating system. Uh, we built the CRS one. Uh, we acquired Pirelli uh, roughly at the same time to build optical shelves and optical modules. Uh, that CRS one turned into the CRS-3, turned into the CRS-10, went and worked uh, a bit on the ASR-9K, the ASR-1K. From there, worked on uh, the uh, 8K, uh, the NCS-8K at this point, the NCS-5500. If it was big iron, I was working on it at Cisco. And mm -hmm. not, to, not to tout it too hard, but uh, for a while there, I did 24 of the world's, of the internet's fastest routers in a row. And interestingly, as, as bizarre as it sounds, wow. I kind of got bored. There's like Dave's the router guy and Dave can do whatever <laughs> yeah. he wants as long as he builds routers. Um, but I actually wanted to do something different. So I jumped over to Juniper for a couple of years and where I had a number mm -hmm. of life friends, as I mentioned before, and had an opportunity to work right. uh, what I thought was an entire portfolio and started working on next gen Junos and 3D chipsets and the uh, PTX and a number of platforms there. And then got a phone call again in a from a guy in a southern drawl who said we really really want you to come back. So I went back to Cisco for my second nine and a half year stint. <clears throat> but there I uh, I had a bigger I had a bigger job. They I was a chief architect over at Cisco across the whole portfolio. Uh, worked on a lot of the iron, a lot of the acquisitions, a lot of the ASICs, a lot of optical modules, expansion of XR. So I've been in and around WAN equipment, but. That's really that mm -hmm. in and itself is kind of interesting and, and a huge technical challenge. But really, how I want to tie this back to the conversation we're having today is when you go and build WAN equipment, you really build it for very specific customer situations and, and really the tier one, tier two mm -hmm. uh, customers of the internet. And I say that because those mm -hmm. uh, those customers really end up uh, driving the entire industry. So whether it was a multi-chassis router, or it was a low-cost, high-capacity high router, or it, it's now a one RU, take take one of those big router blades and turn it on its side and make that a modular router where you can rack and stack and pay as you mm -hmm. grow. All of those different pieces, all of those right. different designs really came out of 
what is necessary for the internet core backbone and what is it necessary for a telco WAN routing solution where tier one, like in, in the US, you're talking about 50 million subscribers or households and you're talking, same thing in Europe and same thing all right. around the Asia, Asia Pacific and those other countries. So WAN routing's in my blood and in the last, last mm -hmm. stint at Cisco, programmable networking got in my blood. And what I mean by this is the internet uh, architecture yes. I felt had a huge stall after MPLS VPNs. <clears throat> and sure, there was plenty of tunneling mm -hmm. pieces and there's plenty of, of interesting advancements, all of them rather incremental and none of them leapfrogging. And <clears throat> obviously, in, if you're in and around the industry, you know that the biggest conversation has been around software-defined networking. And being a WAN guy, I found right. that the conversation around software-defined networking limited to just data centers and limited to just data center switching uh, yes. really was Absolutely. a very limiting part of the architecture where what I want to build in the internet is that I can program the bandwidth at any time in real time on demand, anywhere I want to go. I can, I'm going to get mm -hmm. guaranteed bandwidth, guaranteed latency, just like I can out of the protocols that we've talked about already out of MPLS, let's say. But I only have to pay for what I use. Right. I don't need to pay for these big, fat, expensive circuits. And this notion of network as a service and software-defined networking taken to the WAN now is the conversation inside WAN, inside the WAN community. And I say that because not only did the internet right. architecture stall not becoming programmable, telcos architectures really stalled because they they are not cloud companies. They are not cloud first. They are not building the cloud mm -hmm. connectivity necessary mm -hmm. for enterprises and what we need to drive business across all of society. And I say that because enterprise IT architectures are now not just driven out of the cloud, not just hybrid cloud, they are fully multi-cloud. Different SaaS applications have different clouds. There's right. security right. clouds, as Absolutely. you know, UC yeah. clouds, uh, storage clouds, on and on and on, as well as public clouds and then private data centers. That is, well, in yeah, fact, I mean, the even enterprise just classic, architecture. You know, cloud services. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, no, no matter no matter what you're doing, you're still using multiple uh, providers. Even just infrastructure as a service, most people still have you know multiple infrastructure as a service providers. Certainly. So, you bring up a, a really good point that I want to want to touch on a little more deeply, which is that. You know, so so we at Telegeography founded the the WAN Summit in 2013 just because there wasn't a conference like focused specifically on the enterprise WAN. Um, there was lots of stuff going on around that time. Our, you know, whether it was you know MEF oriented or Layer One Two Three kind of events for SD SDN as what I would you know, have thought of then as uniquely a kind of carrier technology for facilitating OSS, BSS, uh, that kind of thing. Um, how are you guys bringing what that promise of SDN was? I mean, how long have, have we been hearing people say, oh, we want bandwidth on demand for the enterprise? And I have never seen it emerge as a commercial model from, from the carriers. Is it a commercial model now? Is, is bandwidth on demand real? Uh, it's not from the carriers. It is from Packet right. Fabric. And mm -hmm. let me let me just tease, take tease apart and unpack a bit what you said because it's key. So yeah. the existing organizations, often standards bodies, decided to start talking about SDN and then start adding some program, programmable interfaces inside 
their legacy stack. Right. So it literally is just putting more lipstick on a pig. But nonetheless, those ancient, and what I mean by ancient is decades old IT stacks and ways of doing OSS, BSS, and the patchwork quilt of tools necessary to do it is a complete and utter dead end. The different architectures mm -hmm. that are being put in place and requirements, uh, sorry, requirements that standards bodies are inventing requirements for themselves, which is always an interesting case, are, have really put the entire telecommunications industry at, delayed and slowed them down by over a decade. The last decade was lost with the SDN conference lifestyle that is exactly what you're describing. I mean, being mm -hmm. a little bit more harsh than you are to this because, mm -hmm. look, I was there. I was talking to, I was talking at this conference <laughs> sure. just thinking we were making progress. Yeah. In fact, we weren't making progress. And you can see this uh, instead of just mm -hmm. as, as you know, one guy's opinion or maybe two guys' opinions. The, look at the products that are available in the industry today to actually deliver software-defined software, software -defined WAN or bandwidth as a service. They're effectively non-existent or somebody's invented one piece, one tool that needs to fit within a 42-piece 42, 42 puzzle to actually make something work. And it mm, just, mm -hmm. no one's been, right. no one has shown that they can make it work. It requires a huge amount of development, a huge amount of cost, obviously a huge amount of time. And frankly, none of the tier one, tier two, three, tier, tier one through three telcos have, have really proven this model out at all that they can make it work. Now, it's not just the legacy OSS, BSS, OSS stack. It's also the legacy business model and the way that, that quote, circuits mm -hmm. are you know 56k lines or isdn lines and we're and it's still being sold that way versus a notion of real-time on demand with real-time on demand bandwidth and also pay for what you use and those two technology and business disruptions were required to make network as a service possible here in in the 2020s right well well and it's it, that's an interesting way of of thinking about it from a kind of almost economics perspective of how innovation happens within a a, a very entrenched industry if you will right so so and what i mean by that is is uh maybe you know the story uh and correct me if i have it wrong but i i kind of recall that the viptela team were largely some folks at cisco who left because in order to really make sd wan the way that they they saw it, they had to go out, be a startup, and then got swept back into the company, right? So, if if I have that um, you know sort of mythology right, it's it, the, the the point being that sometimes there's this energy and ability to step back from a legacy system out of a startup um, that that can innovate in ways that some larger companies that, that don't have that same inertia uh, are, are have, struggle with, frankly, you know. Yeah, and without talking about the uh the cisco viptela situation mm -hmm. you, i'm going to generalize it which may be applicable to that situation that the amount of time necessary able that's required and that a large company whether it's a telco or otherwise is able to give an innovation or incubation team is longer than the patience than they have for large streams of revenue and a mm -hmm. startup mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. not is not needing a billion or more dollars a year out of every innovation project, they're able to start with right. a much, much smaller number with higher growth. But unfortunately, that doesn't fit into necessarily a large company's PL balance sheet. And so you often right. do need to have entrepreneurs go out, take some risk, 
you know, to, and take some time and build out technology. And frankly, that's what we ended up doing here at Packet Fabric. You know, our intellectual mm -hmm. property is our software platform. Even though we right. started the conversation talking about hardware platforms and our history of hardware platforms, really, we use off-the-shelf uh, packet flingers, uh, you know, from all the common companies out there. But really, what the clear intellectual property is, is the software platform not limited or stomied by a 20-year-old stack or limited or stomied by any of those patchwork quilt of tools. In fact, interestingly, um, we refuse to use equipment that requires a very specific software tool to run it. We work directly with the APIs or mm. with any interface mm. that the device gives us, which means we're not locked into these SDN religion wars. And not, even though this this religion is is just about done with OpenFlow or NetConfiang or is it protobufs or is it uh, right. grpc like who cares um you know customers want real-time on-demand bandwidth they don't necessarily care if we're you know uh open flow or yang purists instead make it work and that's right. that's really right. what's driving that business mm -hmm. economy as mm -hmm. you say which is make it work and make it solid and make it redundant and make it telco grade but don't give me that telco experience um, yeah, so, so I, I just wanted to jump in and, and say that uh, we've had um, uh, Jezebel Gilmore at, at the Wansom before kind of give that story. Could, could you maybe back up a st step and say, what did Packet Fabric come in a few years ago and say, this is what we're going to do? Are you, are, you, are you buying wavelengths between data centers? Is it, you mentioned it's, it's really the software that, that, that's over that transport. What is, what is the sort of uh, core commercial offering to the enterprise? Uh, if that if that question makes sense, just to pull it back and and say, you know, th this this is where we're at with this. Sure, and it's changed since I joined Packet Fabric uh, May first mm. of twenty twenty. So yeah, and I'm say are... I heard this story in like 2017, 18 probably. So I really could use a refresher personally, even. So yeah. So really, what we're focusing on right now is being an agile cloud core. And what that means mm -hmm. is we've got a fabric, which means, and here's what's different about being a telco. What a fabric, how a fabric is different than a VPN or different than, than telco DIA circuits uh, and the like is we do have our own underlay network. We lease, mm -hmm. we lease spectrum, we lease fiber, we have our own network. We have our own routers. And we connect and have built a fabric between private data center operators, public cloud, all of those service clouds I just went through, security, storage, UC, right. all the different SaaS plays, et cetera. And we have that network lit. What I mean is the ports are ready for use. Instead of doing truck mm. rolls and digging trenches, we light our mm. entire network and all the ports. That means that through our software platform on top, we can configure and provision real-time on-demand circuits, um, build your own network, cloud connectivity, et cetera, between all of those clouds, between those data centers to an enterprise and have it available on-demand. And so what we've seen, right. uh, just before I so, step forward, a quick tangent, what we've seen you know, during the pandemic is enterprises that needed to get to cloud instantaneously could not wait the six weeks plus for a telco to deliver these circuits. They came, they picked up the phone, right. they called Packet Fabric and said, I need, I need to build my, my new IT network and I need it built now. And here we are with a lit network. And 
what I mean by real-time on-demand is we can configure end-to-end ports across our network sub-minute. We can do virtual circuits, you know, sub-20 seconds. And this means that you can use our, our platform, which has got both a user interface as well as APIs, and can be integrated into workflow managers such that you can have the job, which could be archive, backup, disaster recovery, whatever the case, or it could be a media mm-hmm. uh, production production in the cloud and dial up and down the bandwidth where you need it, when you need it, how you need it, and only pay for what you use. So the platform now is right. not only config and provisioning, it's more telemetry than you get out of, out of any normal NMS because we aren't bound just to SNMP or TL1 or any of these other protocols, which so many legacy operational systems are bound to. And then we, we had to build our own BSS because we, we do know that um, whether you're an enterprise or you're an MSP, having contextualization of who's ordering up the bandwidth, dialing it up and down, allows you to then see departmental activities in use of bandwidth. Or if you're an MSP, it allows you to have hierarchical mm-hmm. billing for uh, your partners, their VARs, and the end customer. And so this complete rewrite of scratch of an operational platform, a telemetry platform, and a BSS platform is really fundamentally what sets Packet Fabric apart. Of Because we're telco grade, what I mean by that is we have redundant fiber and spectrum everywhere. We have redundant hardware stacks everywhere. Our software is cloud, cloud first, cloud native. And so therefore we can scale out horizontally. We are not bound to any notion of an SDN controller and all those conversations of many years of, you know, which controller right. is compatible with this, that, and the other thing, or any proprietary um, orchestration system. We built this ourselves, and it's really a tribute to the net developers, not just network operators, but developers who came out of networking and operations who have built the system before, perhaps several times for other carriers who did not move forward with those projects or could not instantiate it, came to Packet Fabric and said, right, let's just get this done and prove that this can be done. And it can be and can be proven to be cost-effective, profitable, and the rest of it as a business. And that's where we are today. In addition, just one last note, and then I'll let you cut in, the notion of cloud routing, yeah. back to the internet architecture piece, cloud routing has become very interesting because, look, the hybrid cloud architecture of enterprises, uh, which includes going to a private data center operator and say a public cloud or multiple public clouds, had a notion of a gateway somewhere. So anytime you wanted to move traffic between clouds or Mm -hmm. between services, you have this weird tromboning, which goes back and forth between the gateway uh, to these different clouds. We're, because we've got a live active fabric, we can do cloud routing between clouds, between data center operators, using our fabric and in public cloud, it's reducing egress charges massively up to 40%. And that can actually be acquired Mm -hmm. independently Mm -hmm. of our fabric itself. Tying in the notion of cloud routing and multi-cloud workflows and having it fully programmatic has led to really a fundamental change, not only in the internet architecture pieces that I've mentioned, but in enterprise IT architecture, which dramatically needed an upgrade uh, for the last eight to 10 years. 
Yeah, no, actually, that that kind of uh, leads into to what I was um, thinking about here, which is, you know, we're telegeography. We like maps. Um, I, my, my first question along those lines is, is um, I reckon that your physical footprint that you have as this uh, sort of always on lit service, if you will, uh, is is designed around uh, CSP on ramp kind of nodes. Is that is that the general idea or is there something more to it than that? Uh, we're in IXs, CSP on ramps, mm-hmm. and multi multi regional on ramps. Of course, private mm-hmm. data center operators and, and private private data center operators that we've partnered with. So that's why I'm calling it a cloud core, where all right. those different nodes right. and private peering with SaaS providers and private peering with security and storage providers, etc. And then, of course, partnerships with telcos. Uh, as well, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we, you know, we recently right. announced a big partnership with Colt in Europe to have access, so right. our customers can have access to their data centers, and their customers can have access to North American data centers and services as well. And it's, it's really focusing on, not just get get people to cloud, but get people to cloud productively in everything they need to do. And then, and then my my follow up on that, especially the partnership with Colt, is is interesting. Um, how are so your enterprise customers right um not the the channel partnerships how are they getting to you for the most part are they buying dia from uh, the likes of a colt um for, to get from their premises to packet fabric a couple different ways um we do work with uh access providers um that that uh can can get direct access to us in one of our data center locations um Mm-hmm. As well as, you know, there there's still a role for carriers uh, to provide these type and mm-hmm. other metro metro carriers in particular, for which in North America there's right. a large and in, in Europe, metro fiber, as you know, and the cost of metro fiber, and you're the you're the expert here, really has dramatically declined, and so the the amount of metro fiber that that's is true, I can well, vouch for that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That metro fiber is 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 available, and so connectivity. Honestly, even across North America and Europe, just to talk about two markets, we can pretty much get those circuits turned on in, in 72 hours or less. And so that that is the long pole in, mm-hmm. in getting to packet fabric, but it's a pretty short, short t- amount of time and and fairly straightforward these days. Right, right. But the, but the the upshot there is that, you know, in this long conversation we've we've all been having over the past several years about the the sort of um, bandwidth on demand concept for the end user um, when, you know, ultimately they're, they're still having to connect the the premises uh, to, to the data center. So most of the de- on demand part is still within the network itself. Um, do, are we moving toward a true end to end on bandwidth on demand kind of scenario? Are you going to use the term? Are you going to go there? Are you, Greg? Are you going to say five G? <laughs> you ask. Well, yeah. Okay. So that I mean, that's 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 exactly what I was going for, right? But so so, folks, maybe even uh, it's useful to to pause the podcast. I hate to say that because you want to you know stay glued to the set, right? But um, uh, you you have a, a great blog post um, uh, that that folks should check out called Five G Cloud Core. Slice as a service isn't just for pizza, right? So, so that's where I'm. I'm getting this agile cloud core uh, CEO um, talking about 5G. I take it you're not directly involved in the 5G market in in uh, the the provider kind of way, but uh, why are you writing about 5G when you're a cloud core company? Then, 
yeah, we don't own Spectrum. We don't sell mobile handsets. Um, we're not putting radios on poles. But the key part of linking the two parts of the conversation is really uh, that promise of 5G for end-to-end bandwidth. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. where, where private LTE or uh, fixed mobile access using 5G for, for an access circuit, um, those radios right. and those packet gateways have now are now in the market and are being deployed such that bandwidth can be controlled uh, but in that access circuit. Here's where telcos stumble. They don't have mm-hmm. the core network that is real-time on demand that can do 5G slicing. Now, just quickly, 5G slicing is where you have the ability right. to buy 100, 100 gig or hundreds of gigs or whatever from a telco as a corporation or as a business, wherever you may be. You want guaranteed uh, amount of bandwidth and you want it to all the sites that you're located, including to mobile handsets as people are moving around. Okay, what does that mean? You need right. to be able to flexibly orchestrate the radio side, the handset to the to the to the pole, to the radio on the pole. But then what, where's the telco promise there? Because, you know, throughout the whole conversation, um, we've been a little bit snarky towards the telcos, but in fact, it's true. They don't have the ability to control their core on demand or their WAN on demand, whichever word you like to use. They don't have connectivity to the data centers. Mm-hmm. And the reason why data centers and cloud are so, so important is that the user experience of 5G and of mobile phones now and of fixed mobile access and all of enterprise and consumer is defined. My definition is the amount of latency between the handset and the cloud and any one of the clouds that you want to go to, whether it's a Mm -hmm. business oriented salesforce.com or it's you're downloading, downloading a video or you're doing storage or you're uploading photos or you're doing anything that you want to do. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that comes up on the show often. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Just, just, just real quick. That, 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 I mean, that comes up on the show often. That, that you know, the way that we used to talk about performance when you had an MPLS network was was about the performance of the network. Your SLAs, your jitter, packet loss was about the network from end to end. Enterprises don't want to talk about network performance now. They want to talk about application performance, right? So it's 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 all about uh, you know your, your SLAs metrics are important for the application and. And, you know, when the, the, the application is inevitably, uh, you know, uh, in the cloud now. And, and so network melts away in a certain sense, but then becomes more important than ever in another sense, right? So it's like a yin and a yang there, you know? Yeah, it's just, it's, it's you know, the, the user experience is being defined by what they're looking at, which is the application. Right. And the right. major contributor to that, in many cases, is in fact the use of, overlay tunnels to get to the cloud. And there's a zillion overlay players mm-hmm. out there today who are making it easier to get to cloud, but no better experience, mm-hmm. no guarantees of bandwidth or SLA. So this is why I focus so much time right. on is, do you have this out of your underlay such that you can guarantee bandwidth, such that you can do on demand and you can do things like 5G slicing. So if I'm running my enterprise out of the cloud, whether it's you know, using 5G access or using my mobile handset for my mobile sale, my mobile force, do I have the ability to get bandwidth and get connectivity to where I needed to go on demand? And that's why Packet Fabric is uniquely positioned and why telcos are really going to struggle in this space. Um, they're the ones who, are, who have spent billions of dollars on spectrum, billions of dollars on radios and, and new radios to be installed, you know, in any nation state and around the globe. 
but in the last 10 years or mm -hmm. even longer, there has been no expenditure of capital to get to cloud, to connect to clouds, to upgrade their core, to change the software out. Lots and lots of conferences, lots and lots of conversations, lots and lots of specifications that, that are going nowhere. Mm -hmm. Open source projects that aren't being adopted. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, the industry is in a troubling case. But thank, but the reason why I put my money where my mouth is at Packet Fabric is that they were Packet Fabric is not bound by any of those pieces. We are presenting a platform to our users that is program programmable, mm -hmm. that can be integrated into these workflows, mm -hmm. that can be used for five G slicing, and our role in five G is really providing that programmable real time on demand core that's going to be necessary for five G, and in particular a unique and different billing system that allows for the contextualization that I described and for pay for what you use. And that also mm -hmm. is necessary for 5G because if you're mobile right. and moving, we need to follow not only Greg and Dave, but maybe you need to follow our departments and you certainly need to follow the companies that we work for. And that needs to be able to be contextualized across the entire network. So it is a combination of all those pieces that have to come together for 5G slicing to emerge. And here we are. And so towards the end right. uh, of, of kind of how this comes together, we found ourselves in a unique position uh, where I was very worried coming to Packet Fabric that telcos were just going to 800 pound gorilla us into the ground, you know, because we're a startup. Right. And they have, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of market cap and billions of dollars of revenue and just massive, massive, massive companies. But in fact, because of the situation that I described, that they've spent a lot of money on spectrum and the radios and not spent it on cloud connectivity, I've moved Packet Fabric to actually be focused on partnering and channel and to enable telcos, right. cable companies, and others to be powered by Packet Fabric. And quote, I'll use terms I don't like, but nonetheless, they're common in the industry, white labeling our portal, white labeling our APIs. Hmm. You know, I'm happy to be powered by Packet Fabric mm -hmm. underneath and allow somebody else to take their giant brand and take that to market. And um, it's a great place uh, for us to be, but it's also a great way to move this Internet architecture forward. And that that's really part of what I'm trying to do as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I you know. Obviously, I'm I'm an analyst. I'm neutral on all of these things, um, it, but I, I have a lot of conversations with carriers, and there's there is a continuum of of opinions there from that that ranges from you know there's still a few out there that are doggedly holding on to to an MPLS kind of vision of the world to a few that are like hey look we know um, that you know so multi cloud connectivity is is what really matters. Um, along with getting to the customer premises, right? So, so it seems to me there's the possibility for, let's use another odious business term, a lot of sy synergy, right? Between the folks who are, who are putting that investment into um, making 5G so widely available at the customer premises level on that edge, but, but then being able to actually make it perform uh, with, with the applications uh, on, on the other side of, of that two-sided kind of market, right? So. There is, and and really, what's uh, what's changing in that part of the architecture? And now we'll move to another big industry subject, which is, what about this whole edge movement? What does that really mean? Yes. Um, well, indeed. what that means is uh, is that the internet exchanges, which used to be in very large centralized locations, and then went regional, of course, when things like Netflix and 
Google Global Cash and others mm-hmm. started and Akamai started putting CDNs, uh, so, yeah. yeah, CDNs out in out in the edge. That moved to regional and metro peering. Well, now the internet exchanges and and peering and and where those uh, where those interconnections are happening is directly at the tower. And right. so as as you're able to to see the ability to dial up real time in demand as close to that radio as possible. Not only can you have processing, you can have cloud access as close to the edge as possible. Right. And as we know, a number of the big public cloud providers and, and other stack vendors are starting to put things out at the edge and starting to move these pieces out. And so uh, storage clouds, security clouds, which today are centralized into, into large public cloud spaces, also can move out to the edge because let's tie this, start tying this together. Mobile mm-hmm. to cloud internet exchanges moving to the edge out to the tower enterprises wanting to get away from expensive telco access lines moving to sd-wan and using consumer internet with a tunneling right. technology to a gateway today in in today's internet architecture those gateways are in a public cloud frequently then storage services in another cloud and uh, security services in another cloud which leads to tromboning of traffic again across mm-hmm. all of these clouds mm-hmm. Right. And then back again, if you add in unified communications or what you know, tools like we're using today, those are often in another cloud. So now we have this crazy path that our traffic is actually taking. So <laughs> back to your point before, application performance is being dictated by network performance because of the internet architecture that's been created of snaking and tromboning this traffic through all these different clouds for the services that are necessary for treatment. Let's right. shut down that architecture. And use the use the edge, move the SD WAN gateways to the points of presence of a network as a service. Move those storage mm-hmm. nodes, move those security nodes out. Potentially even have those all the way at the tower. Now you and I and and enterprises and all consumers will have a single flow of traffic from their right. mobile device or from their enterprise into the cloud without lots of tromboning and snaking, because there's a fabric underneath it. And that's really how this kind of ties together of why a fabric is necessary, features like cloud router are necessary to optimize between clouds. And in particular, by having all these services already connected to the fabric, there is not the tromboning that you see in an otherwise overlay-laden, MPLS-laden, legacy Mm -hmm. operational system-laden internet architecture. That's, That's really what you asked me, I think 20 minutes ago now, what is the target that Packet Fabric's <laughs> going after? That's the target right. we're going after and why I call it an agile cloud right. core. Because mm-hmm. we can fix the network performance and the network that network architecture that's hampering application performance because we simply have a different design for the way the internet should be constructed and how to program and orchestrate the paths that that are now flowing between all these different clouds. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really fascinating picture. Uh, you know, to to think about how the centralized breakouts. You know, the the problem with that is the tromboning. You're describing how getting rid of those centralized breakouts then created a new set of tromboning, sort of, and that's that's the problem that's that's sort of emerging here, which is uh, is a way I hadn't really heard it phrased before. That's really interesting. Yeah. So now, waxing philosophical, if you will, uh, stepping back from from the sort of role uh, in in the network, what do you see as the the sort of 
key apps or, or use cases from the enterprise side that this facilitates? Like what, what does the future look like um, for, for the end user in terms of being able to do things that potentially we can't do right now? So the, what, what's, there's a few industries that are really driving, are at the tip of the spear, right at the tip of the spear. Certainly mm -hmm. media and entertainment is there and their movement of production right. studios in the cloud. So great. You're now yeah. are doing potentially shoot to cloud, which is maybe a little bit beyond the tip of the spear, but you still have the notion of a production studio in the cloud. Second coming out of that is, is also that they want to be able to do their post-processing and VFX out of the cloud. And a lot of those employees are spread out mm -hmm. all over the globe. And the world right. in that world, there are still different tools that are cloud specific. So maybe you do some post-processing in, in, let's say, Azure, just for a safe example, but then you do your transcoding and distribution out of Amazon, just for example. You could have inserted Google for doing rendering or any combination of those because a lot of sure. these public clouds yeah. have specialized in their tools. So now you ask, what is our role in this? Now you have the ability, instead of having massive cost tromboning and, and IT headaches to be able to string together these very large bandwidth uh, requiring low latency, requiring workloads and put them on a fabric and enable that to happen. So we do lots of work in media and entertainment. Second, uh, we know that uh, the healthcare industry, of course, is undergoing a lot of aggregation. It's, it's had a lot of activity, of course, over the last, last year or so, but still really the notion of mm -hmm. how our payer provider system works is really a cloud-based and multi-cloud workflow mechanism. And so we can transform the industries that already have made moves to, to private data centers, further moves into public cloud, and be able to tie mm -hmm. those together. Of course, the financial industry is another obvious one with, with the way that front ends and back ends are working across on-prem uh, private data centers and public clouds for transactions. That one is very interesting, not only because of the bandwidth, but really because of the low latency requirements that are necessary for, for uh, consumer transaction processing, as well as the application development pieces. And last, look, I'd be remiss, we've already talked about 5G, so that means we have to bring up IoT. And the interesting piece of, right. of the way many IoT and smart city workflows are working out is they're already multi-cloud uh, because certain clouds are better at certain types of AI or certain types of data ingest or of certain types of mm -hmm. object store capabilities. And as an IOT vendor um, start begins to bring in data associated with their, their sensors or their actuators or whatever that's being worked on could be elevators. The right. owners of the buildings need certain amount of data uh, facilities management needs certain types of data and on and on. And mm -hmm. so therefore these now become multi-party, multi-cloud workflow, again, really suited for a fabric. And although perhaps I pulled out some, some known use cases, the reason why I, I focused on these fairly known use cases is really that they all have something in common. They're often multi-user, they're all multi-cloud, and the, the old conversation around uh, move to cloud or hybrid cloud architectures, that's really not the conversation going on. It's really, how do I orchestrate workloads across multiple clouds and across not only multiple geographies, right. but where my employees are also located, which is most often global. And so 
You need to be able to move data mm -hmm. even within a public cloud very rapidly or between public clouds very rapidly across the globe to be able to have the employee base service the the business and the consumers associated with it. And again, that is necessitating a fabric and one that is not statically created or statically created either with, with DIA right. or typical cloud links or with MPLS VPNs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not, not just global either, but distributed globally even at that. So not concentrated in, in the CBD of, of major metros anymore even, right? So especially when you're talking about an engineer getting an output from an IoT device or whatever, that engineer now is very likely not sitting in the office, right? So um, with, you know, with, with a, a native DIA port, uh, you know, pop in, in the basement or whatever. So, yeah. Not at all. Not at all. It's the same for right. artists. Same for VX, VFX, same for healthcare. You know, it, it just goes on and on that um, the distributed global workforce is a real thing and that distributed global data movements a real thing and therefore distributed global connectivity necessit is necessitated by all of those facts. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, this has been really, really interesting. I've, I wonder if, if to, to wrap up, I could ask you um, a, a vague question that I like to ask people. <laughs> so I apologize right, for its vagueness, but I, I, yeah, yeah, I like to, I, I like to think about this one uh, in, in in the context of everything that we're talking about. You know, first of all, it's 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 kind of long been the case that uh, that the needs of IT drove the 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 WAN IT infrastructure team. It seems like now that that role is reversing a little bit in a sense that that the abilities of the WAN of the IT infrastructure team are going to drive changes in IT. Uh, do do you see that? And in, in 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 a way, does this kind of make their the the concept of a WAN disappear or at least fundamentally change altogether? Like we're we're not in what a WAN originally was, was a, a, you know, larger geographic implementation of a LAN computers networked to each other. We almost don't even do that anymore. We're, we're getting to a place, everything else is happening over the top, right? It's a, do you see the, the WAN as such as a, as a layers one through three uh, technology disappearing and, and everything just becomes software? Uh, well, first of all, layer one, two, three in the WAN will never disappear. Take that back, Greg. Take it back. All right. Um, yeah, I sure hope so, because that's my my area of analysis and expertise. But yeah, yeah, we have to connect. There's no doubt, right? We have to connect. But the but the connections is is the connection still the thing? That's the, you know. Uh, no, it's being presented as software now, which is kind of what we've been talking about for the last right. bit. And what's driving exactly. this? What's driving this? I would say actually is even a step above uh, WAN and WAN managers and WAN technology. It is the CIO mm. of businesses. And mm. look, they're mm -hmm. contemplating why, if it's not the intellectual property of their business to own, manage, and operate a wide area network, why are they doing it? Uh, why can they can they just get it yeah, from somebody? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the rise of network as mm -hmm. a service. Where look, we can right. do that and we can do that for you, and we can present what was incredibly complex and incredibly cumbersome and incredibly expensive as a low cost, easy to use interface, dial it up, dial it down, pay for what you use. That is how the WAN is going to express itself. We may be one of the early companies on this journey, mm -hmm. but um, all aspects, mm -hmm. I think, of, of IT certainly are going to express themselves as, as a service. And the WAN may not have been at the forefront of the party when it was SDN was talking about data centers. 
But in fact, I would say with that mm. whole SDN hype curve, we are the realization and network as a service is the realization of that original SDN vision. It did not, it might have begun in the data center, but it certainly didn't end there. And I don't think it's done yet of being able right. to continue to move networking to be delivered as a service and all the complexity of networking to be delivered through software. I mean, right now, the network is code. And that's really the the fundamental change in movement mm -hmm. that I that I think the industry is going to be talking about for the rest of the 2020s. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that 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 sounds absolutely uh, along the lines of what I was trying to articulate. So thank you for for making me uh, make some sense there. Excellent. Well, yeah, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I, I always like to close things out um, with with uh, with this question. It's uh, and particularly since uh, you're. You're sitting in an RV as we record this, so sort of doing the, a little bit of the digital, digital nomad kind of thing. Now that life is returning to a little bit of normalcy uh, to some extent, uh, a lot of folks in the U.S. in particular, I know uh, the, the world is still struggling in, in many places, but in the U.S., we have a lot of folks vaccinated. We're starting to do things again. What have you been missing most that you, you couldn't wait or can't yet wait uh, to get out there and do? Um, now that the world is returning to uh, some kind of baseline. Yeah, I've lived a very international career and a very international mm -hmm. life. Mo most of my friends are overseas and in other countries and in other places that I can't go visit and can't see. I have a deep, deep need to see more of the planet and to be with more of my friends and, and, and continue to see and learn more about all the people. Uh, in different locations and how yeah. they're trying to figure this whole thing out. And I, you know, I love, mm -hmm. I love where I live and I love the country I live in. It's a beautiful place. I've never seen more of it than I have this past year because I haven't been able to leave the borders. You know, That's I right. live this digital nomadic life. Yeah. So that way I can continue to scratch the itch to need to see more, more of the planet and, and to, to be able to do some things, you know, that are a bit more normal. But, um, I am missing the entire globe and, and all my friends overseas, and I can't wait to be able to go visit them. But it's just not yet. Uh, we're not out. We're not out of the other side of this pandemic yeah. by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. So I've Absolutely. I've stayed in touch like everybody else through lots and lots of Zoom calls and lots and lots of instant messaging. But it's just not the same. I can't wait to get to see him again. Yeah, likewise. Cheers to that. Well, uh, Dave, thank you so much. Um, folks can check out your blog post. Um, uh, uh, follow Packet Fabric on LinkedIn. I assume places like that. Any other any other sort of uh, links you want to plug there? Well, there's you know not only just uh, the plugs for the blogs, but uh, you know do check out PacketFabric.com. We're a bit different, so I've been a bit transparent today. But look, if you get to our website, you're going to see the knowledge base of all of our APIs. You're going to see the documentation that we have. We believe in full transparency of the library of APIs to make this happen. Uh, we've got everything from our locations to our pricing online. And then there's some uh, interesting opinions out there in our blogs. Not only is there 5G piece, but, you know, more on describing what is a fabric, what is network as a service, and then some of the other pieces out there. And it's, uh, it's a good read if you have copious free time. But in particular, if you're a geek out there, check out the APIs, check out the interface, and um, we'd love to show mm -hmm. it to you. So. There's, there's a lot to see and think about in network as a service and what this means for the internet architecture. And um, we want to keep pushing it. Awesome. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. And I, I look forward to uh, hopefully being at a conference again soon where we, we might have the chance to meet in person. Hey, thanks a lot, Greg. And you are the WAN man. <laughs> that's right. There you go. All right. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that because that's the best. All right. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks very much for listening. The WAN Manager podcast is brought to you by Telegeography, a division of Primetrica Incorporated, and is edited and produced by Jane Miller. I wrote the theme song you're listening to right now, and we get administrative canine support from my dog, Honeybun, who you might hear chiming in from time to time when the mood strikes her. If you want to learn more about our data, head over to telegeography.com where you can find our blog that covers many of the topics we hit here, and you can sign up for our WAN Manager newsletter. Until next time, have a great day. So guess what, folks? We got some big news at Telegeography, and that is that we just launched our WAN Forum. What is a WAN Forum? Well, this is a content hub and community for anyone involved in the management of a WAN or in IT infrastructure for mid to large enterprises. And it's got all the analysis and content that you enjoy from Telegeography related to the WAN, uh, plus some extra videos, some interviews, and some uh, special tools that we've designed um, just uh, for inclusion here, like our SD-WAN vendor selector, um, a high-level WAN cost calculator to give you some ideas of what market prices are. Basically, if you like the kind of stuff that we talk about on this podcast, and you're an end user, we think that you'll enjoy the WAN forum. And of course, this is a space meant to be shared, which is why a WAN forum subscription includes access for up to 20 members of your team. So check it out by heading to WANforum.com. We'll be adding some new tools, constantly adding new analysis, and announcing some upcoming WAN forum events very soon. So you want to make sure you bookmark that. That's WANforum.com. We can't wait to see you there and for you to dive in.